Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The American Civil War is considered by Marxists to be the second American Revolution. It finally uprooted slavery and paved the way for the struggle of the working class to unfold on a gigantic scale. As Marx said at the time, labor in the white skin can never free itself as long as labor in the black skin is branded. While this revolution was a tremendous step forward, it never realized its promise to black people. In light of today's mass struggle against racism, it is important to return to one of the most pivotal events in this long fight. In this talk, John Peterson, editor of Socialist Revolution USA, discusses the American Civil War to end slavery. Okay, merci, camarade. Thanks, everybody. Uh, it's uh, it's really a pleasure to be here with you today, talking about one of my all-time favorite subjects. Uh, but before I get started, I want to ask you all a question. How many of you participated in the George Floyd protests last summer? How many of you watched as the largest movement in American history unfolded week after week, defying vicious police brutality in the middle of a pandemic? This is a movement that eventually involved 2,000 U.S. city with hundreds more participating worldwide, and it, uh, it drew in fully 10% of the U.S. adult population. Now, the protests even drove Donald Trump into a bunker under the White House. And let's not forget that a majority of Americans supported the burning of a Minneapolis police precinct. These events were a forceful reminder that institutional racism is alive and well, that the fight against inequality and oppression cannot be separated from the fight against class exploitation, and that the only way to bring about serious systemic change is through mass struggle. But it was also a reminder that fundamental change will require even larger and more sustained mobilizations. And above all, class independent organization and a leadership willing to fight to the end with class struggle methods. A leadership that exerts every fiber in its being to concentrate the elemental energy of the masses. But if we're going to prepare properly for the revolutions of the not-too-distant future, we have to soberly analyze the revolutions of the past, including, including the defeats, the betrayals, the periods of demoralization and reaction. And we're especially interested in tracing out the role of the masses whose potential power is like flood water behind a dam. Now, the first American Revolution is an amazing period. It's full of heroic examples of mass struggle and sacrifice. But in my opinion, when it comes to the sheer drama of American history, nothing quite compares to the U.S. Civil War, which was, of course, the second American Revolution. It's what forged the nation we live in today, and it set the stage for the next American Revolution, the Socialist Revolution. It's not for nothing that Marx called it, quote, the greatest event of the age. But I'm not here just to give a chronology of the war, a recap of the main participants in the battles. I'm going to present a dialectical and historical materialist an analysis of these events to provide a framework for understanding these and other related social processes on a deeper level. Facts and figures are important, but they're not sufficient if we want to understand those most complex of social phenomena, which includes wars, revolutions, counter-revolutions. 
And like earthquakes and volcanoes, these are nonlinear processes. They're the result of accumulations of contradictions and pressures that eventually reach a tipping point. In its essence, the U.S. Civil War was a titanic struggle between the historically progressive industrial capitalism of the North and the plantation and slave-owning counter-revolution of the South. It was the forcible repression and eventual expropriation by the big bourgeois of a petty bourgeois libertarian rebellion. So ultimately, it was a fight to determine which mode of exploitation, wage labor or slave labor, would predominate economically and politically within the bounds of the American nation state. But it wasn't a monolithic and united struggle of slavery-hating capitalists and anti-racist workers and small farmers on one side, uh, fighting against the united slavery-loving plantation owners and racist poor farmers on the other side. There were deep class contradictions as well as racism on both sides of the sectional divide. As an example, many northern workers were suspicious of slaves, and especially freed slaves who they saw as competitors for jobs and land. But ultimately, the origins of the Civil War can be traced to the incomplete nature of the first American Revolution. What are typically considered the, the tasks of the bourgeois revolution were incomplete and another revolution was needed. So in my view, this, the American Civil War and Reconstruction must be counted among the greatest events in world history. This was the last great push of the bourgeoisie as a historically progressive class. Remember, just a few years later, in 1871, we had the Paris Commune. <clears throat> That was the first entry of the working class onto the stage of history as a contender for power. And all major worldwide revolutionary movements after that had at least one foot clearly on the proletarian revolution side of history. <coughs> it could even be argued, I think, that the Civil War was the most classical bourgeois revolution. Uh, in the sense that in, uh, in past revolutions, the capitalist class did not play such a conscious role as a class in the process of imposing its preferred class and property relations. Not only did the North use the war to break up or accelerate the breakup of non-capitalist forms of exploitation and production throughout the country, it used it also to consolidate the state institutions that established the political and legal framework for untrammeled capitalist accumulation and expansion after the war. The war allowed for unprecedented centralization in order to finance and mobilize the human and material resources required for victory. This included tariffs and taxes, a military draft, the first national paper currency, the, the de facto nationalization of the railroads and, and a big part of the telegraphs. <clears throat> and of course, what makes it truly a revolution for Marxists is that there was massive participation by ordinary northern workers and small farmers. <clears throat> and they fought to defend the Union and ultimately to smash slavery under the banner of bourgeois liberty, inspired by religious or moral righteousness and the revolutionary spirit of 1776. And as we'll see, hundreds of thousands of slaves played a decisive role in their own emancipation, tens of thousands of them with arms in hand. Now, as we know, revolutions give expression to profound social and economic contradiction. But the precise outcome of such processes results from a struggle of living forces. Uh, and that includes countless accidental elements, and uh, the end result is not predetermined in advance. The role of the individual in history is uh, indubitable, uh, and it can be decisive at certain nodal points. 
Uh, but the main course of events is not decided by the subjective will of individual participants. Take Abraham Lincoln as an example, who was himself conscious of this. As he put it, quote, I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. His ideas and actions evolved dramatically over the course of the conflict, and I think offer an extremely interesting example of reformism passing over into revolution. Initially, he adopted a largely legalistic approach, he, and his aim was to put down a regional rebellion while maintaining the status quo, including slavery. He was only a hardliner on the question of the extension of slavery into new territories. But events eventually compelled him to pursue a revolutionary war of destruction and expropriation against the root cause and support for the South's revolt. Now, had he limited the struggle simply to reestablishing the old order, I think he would have almost certainly failed. But once he recognized the changed conditions and let himself be swept up by the raging torrent, he gave it he gave an impetus to the process in his own way, and he helped transform it into a fully revolutionary struggle, which in turn took on a life of its own. Now, capitalist property relations had been dominant throughout the country for quite some time on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line, which is basically the, the, the border between the North and the South. And the, the U.S. had long been an integral part of the world market. In the decades after the first revolution, its merchant capitalists had been transformed into capitalist manufacturers and industrialists. And over the same period, the, the largely self-sufficient, independent household production of what we call yeoman farmers in the north had also been transformed. Due to a range of economic and social factors, and, and above all the growing pressures of the market, uh, they'd been compelled to become... Uh, agrarian petty commodity producers, or they had lost their land and become wage laborers, or some of them had risen to the position of petty capitalists themselves. Now, the South also had its share of small farmers, some with land of their own, others who worked as tenants on the land of others, others who worked as agricultural laborers uh, on other people's farms. And there was some manufacturing in the South. In fact, there'd been efforts to expand this in the antebellum years for fear of being totally dependent on and dominated by northern manufactured goods. But the, but the predominant mode of exploitation was chattel slavery, the mode of exploitation, yeah, which produced agricultural commodities to be sold for a profit on the domestic and world markets, and above all, cotton. So while the capitalist mode of production was dominant in the country as a whole, the ruling class of each section based itself on very different modes of exploitation. And as a result, they had increasingly divergent priorities and interests. Now, the South had largely dominated the federal government since the Republic was, was founded. But the North increasingly wanted political power to match its rising economic might and its growing population. Now, Southern slavery had been a crucial component in the initial accumulation and expansion of capital by the American ruling class. For well over half a century, the two sections had a symbiotic, if at times strained, relationship. Their interests had coincided, for example, in the struggle against the British, against the Shazites and other internal rebellions after the revolution. Uh, and they were able to negotiate the joint sharing of power within the same state for several decades. But eventually this mutually beneficial relationship hit its limits and turned into its opposite. The North no longer needed the services of a largely rural, atomized, aristocratic, 
petty bourgeois planter class that based itself on slave labor. Slavery was an inefficient use of land and of labor power, and it was a fetter on the further expansion of industrial and financial capital and the exploitation of wage labor. So the North was compelled by the dynamics of capitalist production itself to impose those economic forms on, on everything it touched. Uh, even if these aims were presented in moral or religious terms or in the name of freedom in the abstract. And of course, this represented a mortal threat to the way of life of the South, which was based on the so-called peculiar institution of chattel slavery. <clears throat> I don't have time to go into the horrors of slavery, of the Middle Passage from Africa to the Americas, or the history of the estimated 250 slave uprisings, both large and small, that took place in, in, uh, in what would become the United States and the United States alone. But we should be clear that slavery wasn't passively accepted by the enslaved, and that the millions of slaves who called the United States home had developed their own cultural forms, their communication networks, and methods of resistance. But broadly speaking, by the 1850s, there were two very different socioeconomic entities, two distinct national cultures, if you will, coexisting in the same nation-state, and this wasn't tenable long-term. As Lincoln famously said, quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand. This government divided into slave states and free states cannot endure. They must all be free or all be slave. They must be one thing or the other. And what this reflected was that the framework of the original U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights had reached its limits and was about to burst. In fact, the need for a second revolution was all but guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution itself, which included what was called the Three-Fifths Compromise. Now, as you probably know, this denied the humanity of slaves, but it counted them as three-fifths of a person when calculating the population of a state for purposes of allocating members of the House of Representatives and the Electoral College. This was just one of many compromises intended to cobble a coherent nation out of 13 very different colonies. But in the final analysis, there can be no indefinite compromise on fundamental class questions. Questions such as which class or which layer of a class will hold and exercise power? Which class will dominate politics, economics, social and cultural life? Now, all war is the continuation of politics by other means, and politics is concentrated economics. So a civil war is not merely a military confrontation. It's above all a political and social struggle between and within different classes. Now, I don't have time to go into the controversies as to whether the war was over states' rights or the Constitution or whatever, but let's be real. Uh, as is always the case under capitalism, no matter how it's dressed up, it was always about private property and private wealth. And as it just so happens, on the eve of the war, slaves were the number one asset in the U.S. They accounted for roughly 16% of total household wealth. These humans were considered property and worth an estimated $3.5 billion, which was more than all the railroads, factories, and banks in the entire country put together. By some estimates, that's the equivalent of roughly $10 trillion of today's money. As they used to say, cotton was king, and the textile mills in England and the North had a voracious appetite for, for this raw material. <clears throat> and on the eve of the war, 80% of the world's cotton was produced by slaves in the American South. 
So the Confederates thought they had a lot of cards in their hands when they decided to strike out on their own. But I think the key point here is that those four million humans were not slaves just for the sake of it or because of racism in the abstract. Ultimately, they were slaves to make profits for capital, which will exploit any form of labor it can, even if wage labor producing surplus value is its unique and indispensable counterpart. So, so slavery was big money, and the racist poison that accompanied it was above all a justification and reflection of that economic exploitation. So now that we've covered some of the big picture uh, theoretical background, let's go over a super compacted timeline of events that led to the outbreak of hostilities. Now, slaves first arrived in the 13 colonies in Virginia in 1619. And by 1790, shortly after the Constitution was adopted, there were almost 700,000 slaves in the U.S., that's around 18% of the total population, roughly one in every six people. <clears throat> so slavery was deeply embedded in the country's foundations from the very beginning. Uh, the invention of the cotton gin in 1793 revolutionized cotton production, and it fueled the need for growing numbers of slaves and more land for the cultivation of labor-intensive cotton. Now, the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 was a major territorial expansion, and it bluntly posed the question, would these new territories be free or slave? So in 1820, they, they came up with the Missouri Compromise, and this allowed for the admission of Missouri to the Union as a slave state in exchange for the admission of Maine as a free state. And this was to ensure that the delicate balance of power between free and slave states was maintained. But this set a precedent for the further expansion of slavery. Now, increasingly concrete questions about the role of government flowed from the increasingly divergent interests of the two sections. For example, should the federal government raise money to invest in major infrastructure projects like railroads, canals, ports? Or should it let uh, the states handle that kind of thing and not spend a lo lot of money at the federal level? Now, since the South thought it, it could get along just fine with a few ports, railroads, and waterways, politicians from that part of the country tended to oppose the major policies that were uh, desired by the North. Or as another example, uh, the North wanted the federal government to establish tariffs to protect and nurture its young industries. While the South preferred free trade, uh, because they, they wanted cheap imports of luxury goods in exchange for their agricultural exports. But of course, due to the federal system, policies set by the central government affected all states equally. So tensions flared up again with the tariff of 1828, which was a tax on imported goods to defend the northern industrialists. Now this led to what was called the nullification crisis of 1832 to 33, where South Carolina was already raising the specter of secession. Now, fear and anxiety in the South were sky high at that time, because in 1831, you had had Nat Turner's Rebellion uh, in Virginia, in which over 60 white people were killed. And in response, the slavers had responded in the traditional manner of petty property owners with a malicious brutality and cold-hearted terrorism. When he was captured, Nat Turner was hanged, drawn and quartered, beheaded and buried in an unmarked grave. And as many as 200 other slaves, most of whom had nothing to do with the uprising, were also massacred to set an example. Now in 1845, you had the annexation of Texas into the Union as a slave state. 
And in, uh, from 1846 to 1848, there was a predatory war against Mexico. As you know, the U.S. won that war and expropriated roughly half of the country of Mexico. But once again, the question was posed, would these territories be free or slave? Now, this had become a life or death question by now because the, the two interests, the interests of the two sections were just irreconcilably opposed. Not only did the northern industrialists rely on the exploitation of wage labor, but they depended on the expansion of agricultural petty commodity production as their main market. That's to say that they needed small independent farmers with the means to buy the, the goods that they manufactured. They needed a market. But the slave owners had a very different set of priorities. Their challenge was to keep slaves usefully occupied throughout the agricultural cycle, as well as when agricultural prices fluctuated. So their solution was to make their plantations as self-sufficient as possible, not only in food possession, uh, production, but also in tool making, blacksmithing, and so on. So, so not only is that not a market where you can sell uh, manufactured goods from outside, but this discouraged both petty and industrial commodity production in the lands controlled by the, the slave owners. Now, there was growing international competition that was threatening the dominance of the South when it comes to cotton production. For example, places like India or Egypt were producing cotton. And so geographic expansion was essential to the survival as a class of the slave owners because they needed not only more land to grow cotton, but to find other useful ways to put this enormous inve investment in slaves to work. For example, in ranching operations or, or mining out in the West. So in 1850, there was yet another big compromise in the form of the Fugitive Slave Act. The act decreed that all slaves were to be returned to their owners regardless of what state they were caught in, and that the federal government would enforce this policy throughout the country. This was to compensate for the admission of California as a free state, but there was enormous resentment in the North because the act legitimized and deputized uh, slave catchers in every part of the country. On top of all of this, in 1852, the book uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin was published, and it detailed the horrors of slavery, and it further galvanized abolitionist sentiment in the North, and it infuriated the South. Uh, then in 1854, you had the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and this carved two new territories out of the West as a prelude to establishing two new states. And this was a necessary step towards building the Transcontinental Railroad. <clears throat> but it led to what's, what's been called Bleeding Kansas, as pro- and anti-slavery forces fought a small-scale civil war over whether or not the new states would be free or slave. Also in 1854, the Republican Party was founded as a free soil party against the expansion of slavery. Then in 1856, a senator from Massachusetts, Charles Sumner, was brutally beaten with a cane in the Senate chamber by Representative Preston Brooks of South Carolina for insulting the honor of the South. <coughs> and then in 1857, you had the infamous Dred Scott case, which was decided by the Supreme Court, which ruled that since black people were not U.S. citizens, they could not enjoy any of the rights of citizenship. And it basically said that if a slave was brought by their owner to a free state, they remained slaves, even if slavery didn't exist in that state. So this effectively made slavery legal nationwide. So as you can see, one crisis was layered upon another and the impetus towards a general conflagration was accelerating. And this was compounded by what was called the Panic of 1857, which is a major and classical crisis of overproduction. <coughs> 
But what pretty much tipped the balance once and for all was the meteor of the war, as he was called by Herman Melville, one of my all-time personal revolutionary heroes, John Brown. Now, before I touch on him, though, let's take a brief look at the abolitionist movement generally. Now, the abolitionists were generally a minority political movement, uh, and, and the first uh, abolitionists were religious Mennonites, and Quakers. They were active especially in New England, but also in places like New York and also uh, in, in many border states and in the South itself at, uh, as well. And they were an extremely dedicated and passionate group of people. It included religious leaders, newspaper editors, escaped slaves, and, and many other people. And the reality is that most abolitionists wanted to reform slavery out of existence, not abolish it overnight. And despite opposing slavery, many of them didn't believe there could be genuine equality between uh, blacks and whites, and, and they actually supported resettling free slaves back to Africa. You had activists on the Underground Railroad like Harriet Tubman. You had uh, really you know, consistent revolutionary Democrats like the incomparable orator Frederick Douglass. <clears throat> But then there was John Brown. He was a revolutionary abolitionist and a religious fanatic who believed fervently in equality between blacks and whites. And he understood that the slave-owning aristocracy wasn't going to give up its property without a fight. <clears throat> he played a prominent role in bleeding Kansas, including the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre. <clears throat> Uh, in which five pro-slavery activists were hacked to death with swords. And in, 18, in 1858, he held a meeting in Chatham, Ontario, as part of his plan, which was to prepare a series of raids into Appalachia to free and arm thousands of slaves, to establish a republic of liberated bondsmen that would terrorize the South and make the continuation of slavery economically unviable. <clears throat> Now, these, plan these plans culminated in his ill-fated raid on the U.S. federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry in 1859. <clears throat> but despite having failed, John Brown understood that he could be more powerful in death than in life. <clears throat> as he put it, I've been whipped, as the saying is, but I'm sure I can recover all the lost capital occasioned by that disaster by hanging only a few moments by the neck. As Frederick Douglass put it, his zeal in the cause of freedom was infinitely superior to mine. I could speak for the slave. John Brown could fight for the slave. I could live for the slave. John Brown could die for the slave. And when Malcolm X was asked if white people could join his organization of African unity, he replied, if John Brown were still alive, we might accept him. Now, many in the South had already been openly contemplating secession for years. They thought that if they left the Union, they could build a massive slave empire by conquering Mexico, the Caribbean, and maybe even South America. <clears throat> but John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry pretty much overflowed the cup. Here was proof positive that white Northerners wanted to incite servile report, uh, revolt and expropriate the wealth of the South. Now, across the South, then, arms were purchased, militias were drilled, in preparation for a showdown with the North. <clears throat> now, unfortunately, I don't have time either to go into the fascinating history of American political parties in the 1850s. But if you subscribe to the Socialist Revolution podcast, we're going to have a series over the next few weeks, and I'll be able to give a lot more detail on this and other aspects of, of this period that I didn't have time for today. But for but for now, suffice it to say that the old political parties were breaking down and a wide range of new parties emerged in the years before the war. From the nativist Know Nothing Party to the Free Soil Party, uh, and of course, the Republican Party. 
Now, the Republicans were an almost purely sectional party, and they represented the various class interests uh, of the North. <clears throat> they stood for expansive infrastructure projects, for protective tariffs, for uh, decent wages for workers, and, of course, to stop the expansion of slavery into the territories. And just six years after the party was founded, in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected president on the Republican ballot line. And his election really was then the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, the sitting president at that time, a, a Democrat named James Buchanan, he was a northerner who sympathized with the South, and he was completely paralyzed by the crisis. In his view, it was illegal for the South to secede, <coughs> but it was equally illegal for the federal government to stop secession by force. So what could you do? Now, Lincoln had been elected in a four-way race with just under 40% of the vote. <coughs> uh, he wasn't even on the ballot in 10 southern states. And again, though he despised slavery personally, he was a political moderate and he sought only to limit its expansion. But everyone knew that the end of expansion spelled the eventual death of slavery altogether. <coughs> so many fire eaters, as they were called in the South, they actually celebrated Lincoln's election because they knew it would accelerate the, the process of secession. Now, they sincerely believed that they were the revolutionaries, that they were following in the footsteps of the country's founding generation, that they were defending the Constitution against and, and attempts to rob citizens of their rightful property. And many of them believed that they could somehow negotiate an amicable separation and come to an agreement with Washington on what to do with federal property that was in their states. <clears throat> so on December 20th, 1860, even before Lincoln was inaugurated, South Carolina seceded from the Union, and it was eventually followed by 10 other Southern states. And in response, Lincoln took a measured and diplomatic approach, in large part because he, he was afraid of provoking key border states like Kentucky, Missouri, and Maryland, who hadn't yet left the Union. And his perspective was that Unionist sentiment in the South would eventually assert itself and, and, and the, the, you know, everyone would be brought back together. But he was also firm in declaring that he would protect federal property from seizure and attack. And this led to the April 12, 1861 bombardment of Fort Sumter, which was a federal fort in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. And this finally kicked off the shooting war. Now, we'd need several days to go over the course of the war itself, all the generals, the battles, and so on. Unfortunately, we don't have several days. So here are a few super telegraphic points about the course of the war. <clears throat> Now, contrary to what Lincoln and others in the North had assumed, the start of the war actually cut across any residual Unionist sentiment and actually brought the majority of Southerners together. Though there were, of course, class contradictions, people who opposed the war, desertions, mutinies, and even bread riots in the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia. Now, at the start of the war, the Union army was just 16,000 strong, and most of those troops were stationed in the West. Uh, in addition, a healthy chunk of the officer corps, though by no means all of the best officers, went over to the Confederacy. <clears throat> Now, Lincoln initially called for 75,000 short-term volunteers, then 42,000 more, and eventually a half a million more, as well as instituting eventually a national draft. And by the end of the war, some 2 million people had served in the Union Army, which emerged as the largest, best-trained, and best-equipped military force on the planet. And roughly 185,000 of these were black troops, most of them former slaves. Now, another 750,000 people served in the Confederate uh, military. 
So it was a colossal mobilization on both sides. And, and while many of the most famous battles like Gettysburg or Antietam or Fredericksburg took place in the Eastern Theater, there was also very bitter fighting in the West and in the Deep South, in Tennessee, South Carolina, Georgia. And due mainly to leadership issues, the fighting went quite badly for the Union in the Eastern Theater for the first couple of years, although gains were steadily being made in the West. And, and ironically, Robert E. Lee, who was one of the key generals for the South, his victory against George McClellan in the Seven Days Campaign in Virginia in 1862, this actually meant the end of the North's reformist strategy of trying to end rebellion while keeping slavery in place. So Lee's military success ultimately made the destruction of slavery inevitable. Now, in September of 1862, there was a partial Union victory at the Battle of Antietam, which turned back Lee's first invasion of the North. And on the basis of this momentum, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which promised to free all slaves in areas still in rebellion on January 3rd. 1st, 1863, while leaving the institution in place in the border states that had not seceded. <clears throat> now that summer in July of 1863, saw Robert E. Lee's second invasion of the North, and you had the Battle of Gettysburg, which is the largest and bloodiest of the war. <clears throat> now the North's victory at Gettysburg came on the same day as the fall of Vicksburg, the town of Vicksburg in, in Mississippi, and, and this uh, uh, secured Union control of the Mississippi River, and it effectively cut the Confederacy in half. And many people consider these two events to be the decisive turning point in the war, what some call the, quote, high watermark of the rebellion, although the war went on for two more bloody years. Now, early in the war, escaped slaves were actually returned to their Confederate owners when they crossed over to Union lines. But by May of 1861, they were held instead as contraband of war. Now, crucially, some 500,000 slaves self-emancipated over the course of the war and escaped to Union lines. And this is crucial because, as we've seen, slave labor was the foundation of the Southern economy, and having slaves allowed a larger proportion of the white uh, population to fight in Confederate armies. So it started to become clear that to accelerate the end of the war and to end the bloodshed, the economic basis of the rebellion had to be smashed. Now, some Union generals had unilaterally moved in, in this direction early in the war of, of freeing the slaves, but they were reined in by Lincoln, again, for fear of, of provoking the border states. <clears throat> but Lincoln eventually understood that they were not only fighting the Confederate armies, but the, the majority of the Southern population, which saw it as a defensive war. Now, Union generals like Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman, and Philip Sheridan, they believed that the South should be made to feel the hard hand of war in places like Georgia and Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. <clears throat> and eventually the war was taken into the heart of the Confederacy, with slaves freed uh, en masse, property and railroads destroyed, plantations and foodstuffs expropriated, though the Southern people themselves were not targeted. But this total war approach eventually led to the exhaustion of the South's morale and of their capacity to maintain armies in the field. So once Lincoln had found audacious and tenacious field commanders willing and able to carry out these policies, uh, the economic and demographic, uh, demographic might of the North was all but unstoppable. So in total, the war raged for four years. There were around 10,000 battlefields, about 237 major named battles, and the human costs were horrific. 
There were casualty rates as high as 30% or more in some battles. For example, at the Battle of Antietam, more people were killed, wounded, or missing than in all previous U.S. wars combined. 23,000 in a single day. And for comparison, that's four times the number of U.S. casualties during D-Day uh, in World War II. Now, an estimated 624,000 uh, troops died due to battlefield injuries, accidents, uh, or disease during the war, which is which is about 2.4% of the 1860 population, which would be the equivalent of nearly 8 million Americans being killed today. Uh, hundreds of thousands more were, were maimed or wounded. And if you were in the Union Army, your chance of dying was about 1 in 4, though you were more likely to die from disease than from, from wounds uh, in a battle. Now, on top of this, untold numbers of civilians were, were affected. Uh, as for the South, the records are less precise, but some states suffered a 25% death rate among military-age males. And here's an astonishing fact, I think. In 1866, 20% of Mississippi's state budget was spent on artificial limbs for veterans. Now, Marx and Engels took an enthusiastic interest in the war. They, took an, uh, they, they wrote a whole series of articles and letters about it. And Marx even wrote a letter to Abraham Lincoln on behalf of the First International, uh, congratulating him on his election of 1864. And he wrote, quote, If resistance to the slave power was the reserved watchword of your first election, the triumphant war cry of your re-election is death to slavery. Now, after the war, Confederate apologists fabricated what they, what's called the myth of the lost cause. And they argued that it was a noble cause that was unfortunately doomed to defeat from the beginning due to the North's overwhelming economic and demographic superiority. Now, their cause was not noble, but there is an element of truth in their argument. The population of the Union was 18.5 million, <clears throat> and the population of the Confederacy was just 9 million, and 3.5 million of, of, of those were slaves. And there were another 2.5 million free inhabitants and 500,000 slaves in the border states. So despite being able to put more troops in the field because of the slaves, uh, you know, for the South, the raw demographics definitely favored the North. Now, actually, it was easier for them to put more, more troops in the field because they had slaves doing the work. But even more decisive was the economy. As an example, the, uh, New York State's industrial output alone was four times higher than the entire, uh, it was four times larger than the entire Souths. There were 24,000 miles of railroad in the North at the start of the war, and they built another 4,000 during the war. While the South, which was larger geographically, had 9,000 miles only at the start of the war, and they only built another 400 during the war. So, so one question a lot of people still ask is, could the South have won? Now, wars are amongst, among the most complex of social phenomena, and the precise outcomes can't be determined in advance. Otherwise, there'd be no point in going to war in the first place if you already knew what the result was going to be. So personally, I think that, yes, in theory, perhaps the South could have won. You know, an additional bad break here or there for the Union or a small shift in the world situation could have tipped the balance. For example, Lord Palmerston was keen to recognize and support the Confederacy, but he was pressured against this by the British working class. And several times at, at battles like Gettysburg, literally a handful of soldiers averted disaster for the Union with just seconds to spare. But I think it would have to be a very qualified and theoretical yes. Now, any, any military or political victory would have been extremely pyrrhic 
and temporary. Uh, you know, uh, even in defeat, the North would have been an economic juggernaut. It would have expanded westward, industrialized, and militarized far more rapidly than the South could have. So I think it would have almost certainly conquered and occupied the South like a colony within a generation. So in many ways, defeat was better for the South than victory would have been. Now, I don't have time to go into some of the some more of the demographics of, of the South or why people fought and so on. But, but let's, be, let's understand that both sides thought they were fighting for freedom. But what kind of freedom? Freedom to own people or freedom not to be owned by other people? You know, what kind of property would, would everything be based on? And I think w w one thing that is important to remember is that the freeing of the slaves ranks as one of the biggest revolutionary expropriations without compensation in the whole of world history. We also have to recognize that it was the mass action of the slaves that forced Lincoln and his generals to do what they did. They ran away, they joined the Union Army, they, they sabotaged and crippled the Southern economy. It's, it's what the historian W.E.B. Du, du Bois called uh, a general strike of the slaves. It was their heroism in battle that further radicalized Northern public opinion in favor of abolition. But they didn't win the kind of freedom they expected. As one former plantation owner put it, Emancipated slaves own nothing because nothing but freedom has been given to them. And if you want to understand what, what was intended by the North in, in its conquest of the South, you, you should look up the Juneteenth Declaration that freed the slaves in Texas, which explains very clearly what, 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 was, what they had in mind. Now, I'm almost out of time, and we'd need several more hours just to skim the surface of, of, uh, of Reconstruction. And if there's time during the summing up, I can say some more. But let's just, let's just say that it was an inspiring, brutal, and bloody continuation of, of, the, of the revolution and counter-revolution that was set in motion by the war. Reconstruction lasted until 1877, when the freedmen and women were sold down the river by the northern industrialists. Uh, who by then had their own hands full with uh, of, of massive labor uprisings in the North and the West. So the former slaves were left to the tender mercies of the white terror of the KKK and other such organizations. But to sum up, we have to recognize that the social and economic revolution uh, that was unleashed by all of these events laid the basis for modern capitalism and imperialism. And that so many of the insoluble contradictions we confront today have their roots in those events. And, and all of these developments in turn have established the conditions for socialism. Uh, capitalism ceased to be a progressive social force long ago, and a new class must take political and economic power, a new society must be built, and classes must be abolished altogether. Just as capitalism was built on the backs of millions of slaves, the basis for socialism has been laid also by billions of wage slaves around the world. Now, Trotsky once noted that the U.S. has dynamite built into its foundations. And I think a big chunk of that dynamite is the legacy of slavery and racism. Comrades, this is an epically vast topic, and I've only been able to scratch the surface. For example, I wasn't able to comment on the role of women on both sides of the war, or the Overland Campaign, or the fall of Atlanta, or Sherman's March to the Sea, or or the idea of 40 acres and a mule, or the heroism of the 54th Massachusetts Infantry, or the united struggles of white and black sharecroppers and tenant farmers during Reconstruction. But I hope I've offered some basic analysis, facts, figures, and arguments, and that this has sparked your interest in learning more about this really incredible period, which is so rich in lessons for the class struggles of today and the future. Thank you, comrades. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. 
Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.